Again, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who spilled it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. If you're just joining us this summer, we're doing a series called Songs to Carry On. If you've ever driven on a long road trip from one place to another, you know just how important music is. We remember this again last night. We were traveling by, by air from morning, what was supposed to be till early evening, afternoon, early evening. But of course, traveling these days, that almost never happens. So we, were, uh, we never thought we'd be in Salt Lake City at 11.30 p.m. last night, <laughs> uh, hoping to get back. We eventually got to our house at 2.30 in the morning, but you can imagine uh, I was so tired on East Coast time where we were visiting Katie's family, had a wonderful time together on the East Coast. My sons and I, Katie's still back there with her mom, visiting for a little bit, thinking, how are we going to get back home and not fall asleep? And the key is a good playlist, good music, right? Let's get something going. Let's get it on the tunes. Album or playlist of great travel songs that you and everyone around you knows to help us carry on with our journey, right? Get there safely, arrive in somewhat of good spirits. And that's why we're spending this summer going through the Psalms of Ascent which are these sung prayers that were designed to help people struggling, going from one place to another, transitioning in life. And these psalms were designed as, as Israel's and compiled as Israel's go-to playlist for a journey they would take three times a year. They took the psalms they loved to sing together, they put them all together in one playlist, and they would sing them every time they would journey. So as you and I navigate our own transitions in life, whether that be the simple transition of summer, right? We're outdoors more, we're talking to neighbors more, we're a little more flexible with our lives, whether it's regular transitions like a new job, a new relationship, a new home, or the multi-level transition of life post-pandemic where we've had all these normal rhythms halted and new ones have begun, or even just the transition of life this side of the grave. These psalms are meant to help us carry on with God, with one another, and with ourselves. And so this morning we're covering another transition. This week we're going to talk about the transition of work, through which humanity has always sang or whistled a tune, right, to carry on through work. There's literally a song called Whistle While You Work. The Bible tells a story of a time when work was easy, effortless, because it was done in partnership with God. But our ancestors deliberately left that partnership so that work itself became cursed. It became painful, it became frustrating, uh, producing thorns and thistles instead of fruit. Work relationships transformed into power struggles. And these work-related curses 
are all described back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. Work is hard, it's frustrating, and involves relational power struggles. Has anyone here experienced that with work? Okay, and some of you clearly haven't worked, I guess, in life, which is, hey, I don't know how you got to this point, but God bless you for it. So a former king of God's people named Solomon, he pens this psalm that Dave just read for us and we read together. And on the surface, if you did a little digging, you would think, man, work never went better than it did under this guy. Work for God's people never went better than it did under this guy. Solomon shepherded in, shepherded in the golden age of God's people Israel. His reign produced so much work, so much wealth, so much gold, that they just went ahead and made military equipment out of it. Because there's so much gold, they're like, hey, why not? <laughs> Why use other things when we had all this gold? And yet reflecting back on the end of his life, at the end of his life, Solomon says to some of his sons, vanity, vanity, utter, all that utter vanity, everything is vanity. And so too we hear in our psalm the word vain three times in the first two verses. All this work, all this labor, all this production in and of itself is in vain at the end of one's life. By the way, I'm not sure there's anything more demoralizing than putting effort into work that ends up going all in vain. It ends up just being in vain. When I was a kid, I used to first learn how to make a little bit of money by trading baseball cards for a profit. All right? Uh, my first job, however, was when my father asked me to, to wash the cars for $5. My father showed me how to, it was a hot July day, no one really wanted to do it, but he, he went out there, he showed me how to scrub properly, how to dry the, the car properly so it wouldn't streak, and of course, and to use Windex. Every window, every mirror, every, inside every window, outside every window, my father was obsessed with Windex. I mean, for a while, I thought the guy's scent was ammonia. Right, just like his aftershave, his cologne, this is just what this guy smelled like all the time because he had it in his hand constantly. So 10 minutes after finishing the job, I walked outside to find my dad re-washing, re-drying, re-windexing the cars. Now he paid me the $5, but all my work went in vain. A therapy session and a father-son trip later were all but I'm just telling you, confessing this to you now, and he'll see this later, but my, my first experience with work was this Genesis 3 bundle of pain, of frustration, of a relational power struggle, and that it was all in vain. The vanity of our work underlies this entire psalm. So too, though, thankfully, does the central reality that God works. And that is good news this morning. That there's this, this subterranean good news running beneath this entire psalm that God, thankfully, works also. <clears throat> there's this remarkable story in, uh, about Jesus in chapter 5 of, of John's biography of Jesus' life. It's a Sabbath uh, rest day from work. But Jesus is still working. He's working outside the typical religious areas that might be associated uh, uh, with uh, religious leaders of the times. He goes to walk the grounds of what is this semi-pagan healing center 
where, where people who had infirmities and diseases, they would go to potentially dip their toes and their bodies in this water and they would be, be healed. And he finds this man. He wants to, he's going around working there. He wants to find someone to help. And he finds this man who had been lame for 37 years and he approaches him. And eventually Jesus heals him. And this man is so excited, he goes to tell the religious leaders who immediately go and just pop off at Jesus for working on that religious rest day of theirs. Now, it should be said that this, these same religious leaders had an ongoing debate during that time. Does God himself, God in heaven, does he work on the Sabbath rest day or does he not work? Does he keep his own command to not work on that day, or does he keep the world spinning while the rest of us rest? Most of the leaders of Jesus' time kind of came to agree, well, yeah, God, is, God gets to be different. He keeps working when the rest of us can't. And Jesus actually agrees with them. In, in John chapter 5, verse 17, he says to them, my father never stops working, so why should I? My father never stops working, so why should I? It's this beautiful reminder that, that God is always at work. Really smart scholars talk about three ways that God continues to work in the world. So has always worked in the world, continues to work in the world, and there are these ways. They'll be up here on the screen. Number one is creation. That God makes something out of nothing. Providence that he remains in charge, sustaining and connecting everything he has made as time goes on in the world. He, he sustains it, he keeps it going, and he makes these connections so that things work together in our world. And finally, redemption. He repairs the broken things he's already made and that we have broken. And that's how we see Jesus work in the life of this previously lame man. Redemption. So, Here's some more good news, that even though each one of us has personally decided to, to walk away from a working partnership with God to sort of do our own thing, he invites us, Jesus invites us to be restored to God in himself so that anyone, any and every person who trusts in Jesus will be restored both relationally to God, but also restored to a working partnership with him as well. And that's a beautiful gift that he gives us. You can see a little bit of what's described, what I've just described in our psalm. In verse 1, our psalmist is clearly concerned for any worker who thinks he can do life or she can do life isolated from God, on one's own, without partnership. And he says that that kind of, of, of doing it on our own and going out striking on our own will ultimately mean your work is in vain. And Jesus restores his partnership he once invited every person to simply come to him. He recognized people were burdened, people were tired, people were frustrated by working and doing life on their own. So he says, come to me. And he offered this, this common working image of, a, of an oxen and a yoke. It was a common agricultural working image. He gave him an oxen and a yoke. And he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is an easy yoke. And my burden is a light one. He was essentially saying, hey, I'll be yoked with you to plow and to work so that you don't have to do all of this on your own. You can do it with me in partnership. 
And that's our message in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. In a nutshell, partner with God for work that lasts. If you don't want your work to be in vain, if, if you want something meaningful to be produced that has, a, has an impact now and when you're away, partner with God for work that lasts. Let's talk a little more about what this looks like. Partnering with God at work. Partnering with God begins with having a, a purpose to our work. And as we, as we get to understand how our work aligns with God's work in creation and providence and redemption, we can begin to join God in his work, in those sorts of things, which we may not have considered before. Creative work, designing, developing artistic endeavors, uh, providing work, providing connections, services for others' benefits, all kinds of, of maintenance work that goes on in our world. And we have redemptive work, which is repairing and mending. And you may not have ever considered that your work actually aligns with the way God works in the world. But friends, it does. It actually does. And I want to I dig a little deeper on this. Creative work uh, might include uh, engineers, uh, chemists, teachers, authors, contractors, homeowners, interior decorators, entrepreneurs, full-time parents who make things up all the time, musicians, preachers, educators, trainers who, who see in us this potential that we don't necessarily see in ourselves, right? In any line of work where, where there's, a, there's clay to be molded, and that, that is creative work, that is meant partnering with God. And then there's also providing work which includes those people who connect in work. Uh, realtors, for example, who make connections, right? Uh, social workers, politicians, activists, um, people who sustain, who sustain our world, like God sustains, right? Like, like environmentalists, park and forest services, firemen, police, uh, utility workers, insurance brokers, uh, financial managers. These are people who help sustain what's already there in the world. And then we have redemptive work, which includes all those who repair and mend, like, like counselors and pastors, HR specialists, mechanics, repair technicians of every sort. You have judges and lawyers, doctors, nurses, veterinarians, physical therapists. Redemptive work. It's not only, it's aligning ourselves with God's work, but it's not only that. It's also doing this as God's new working partner in Jesus Christ. You're, so you're not only aligning yourself with God's work, you're, you're working as this, this new partner with God in Jesus Christ. You're given the Holy Spirit to live inside you and empower you so you can work through pain and frustration that's going to come. They, to help you keep going and, and doing so graciously. You're given resources of, of grace and forgiveness so that power struggles in your work, relational power struggles, can be met with patience, with grace, uh, with love, with humility. You no longer, by the way, because of Jesus, have to work for your own, uh, you no longer have to, to live for your own performance at work, to be justified by the work you produce. So many of us do that, that, that you are justified, you are made right, you are made whole because of what Jesus has already done for you, not what you could possibly do through your work. 
And yet so many of us look to our work to make us whole, to give us a sense of being justified and made right. That, friends, by the way, is our psalmist's concern in verse 2. He has in mind the worker who gets up before everybody else, right? Who doesn't go home until really late, who's filled with anxiety. Even as she tries to enjoy dinner, she's thinking about work and thinking about what it says about her, the kind of person who uses work to justify herself internally or before others. That's who the psalmist has in mind. Maybe someone who fears that God will provide at the margins of her life. And, and so she keeps working to sort of give herself more security on the outsides and, 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 and buffer that life so that they're protected from all calamities. And a, a really genuine working partnership with God leaves gaps for God to work. You can't fill it all in. You can't do it all yourself. You can't make everything right. It leaves gaps for God to do the work and for you to rest. As it says here in our Psalms, right? He gives to his beloved sleep. But he can't do that if you don't sleep, <laughs> if you don't rest, if you don't say, God, I've done what I can. I need you to make this work really last and fill in the gaps where I can't. One of the uh, hardest working persons I've ever heard of or read about is this man named George Mueller. He was a German uh, living in England, in London in the 19th century. And he, he believed God had called him to build orphanages. It's, it's really cool this morning. I wanted to connect this to the work that Help One Child does and thinking about foster care. He worked this man, George Mueller, I mean, if you read some of his biographies, and this guy worked as hard as he could with everything at his disposal for caring for orphans. He used time and materials in the best way he could. And by the way, he never asked a human being for anything. It's incredible. He had this decades-long charity helping, and he never asked for anything from others. God would just have people provide out of thin air. It was a remarkable life. He did this for decades. And God would. He would work really hard, and then God would provide out of thin air. And he had this wonderful phrase that I've always tried to remember whenever I think about work, and it's this. He said, work with all your might, but trust not the least to your work. Let me say that again, because it's kind of deep. Work with all your might, but trust not the least to your work. In other words, don't trust your work. Work hard, but don't trust your work. God has to fill in the gaps to make your work actually last. Work hard, but trust God to fill in those gaps, to almost provide the concrete, if you will, to make that work really last. So work, work hard, rest, trust God. And actually, Jesus talks about this as well. And he said that partnership with God really looks like God doing his most productive work when you're actually resting. Uh, he, he, said that the, he said that the kingdom of God is like a man who scattered seeds along the ground. This was a, an image of work in his day, a man who, who's scattering seeds along the ground. And night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, that seed sprouts and grows even though the man does not know how. You see what he's doing there? He's giving us an image of, oh, yeah, actually... It doesn't matter if you try to keep working hard and be anxious and do all these things, or you just rest. God has to be the one to fill in the gaps and make things grow and make things really last in your life. 
So in summary here, partnership with God means aligning yourself with God's work, doing work with Jesus' help, and ultimately leaving gaps for God to make that work last. Now, I need to say this as well. There's a kind of work that is easier and more enjoyable than all the others. And in fact, that's the connection between the two halves of this psalm, which otherwise the psalm, if I'm being honest, seems kind of mismatched. You have work life and domestic life, two different spheres, uh, two different worlds. We actually try our best to keep apart. Solomon brings together in the psalm, and the connection the psalmist makes between them is that some work is easier. And that's what he uses to talk about uh, uh, family life, if you will. He says in verse 3, the fruit of a womb, a reward. Verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with children. So about these verses, nearly every commentator I read uh, very tactfully points out that the normal process of making a child, for most people now, I need to say, take into account foster parents and adoptive parents for sure, but the normal process of making a child technically involves physical work physical exertion, but of the more enjoyable sort. Do I need to say anything more about this to make it more awkward? No? Some of you are shaking your heads like, please don't. Is he going to show drawings or something? I don't know. I'm not going to. But that's the actual connection here that Solomon, that most commentators think Solomon is, is making. That making children is technically work. Enjoyable. Raising children. Definitely work. Definitely work, man. All right, so let's talk about partnering with God at home in our work, because that's a kind of work as well. In our psalm, we're taught a few things about raising children, that children leave a reflective legacy. They need parents, are shaping and are sharpening, and they are a return on investment. So let's talk about these things. First of all, verse 3 says that children are a heritage, meaning they're a legacy that, that usually reflects their parents, a reflective legacy. Of everything Katie and I have, have observed, and, and, and parents more, more skilled and wise than us, and, and all we've read and all we've experienced personally, one of our most tried and true sort of parenting philosophies, takeaways, really comes down to this. Hold out for our kids a high standard, but even higher grace. And that's what we've tried to keep parenting sort of boiled down to. A high standard, even higher grace. God gives us a higher standard uh, of loving God with all of who we are, loving our, our neighbor as much as ourselves. It's a really high standard, but he gives us even higher grace to cover us when we fail to meet that standard. Higher grace in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So if you expect your kids, though, to sort of see and strive towards a high standard and, and even experience an even higher grace, the number one rule of parenting is living it out ourselves, Right? Some of you parents know this because kids, we know, have like a built-in BS detector, right? If they don't see their, their parents living it out, they're like, nah, I, I, <laughs> what is this? After a while, they'll see it. Now, when Katie and I, when our kids see Katie and I occasionally being generous with others, opening up our lives, taking opportunities to share, share Jesus, working hard in the things that we do, but also going to God, and to one another for immediate forgiveness when we fail. There are no guarantees for sure, but chances are much improved that they're going to latch onto that also. They're going to catch on, and they're going to see their need for Jesus also. 
They're going to see the way we do all those things hard, we, that we strive for this, or we also see the ways that we fail and ask forgiveness, and they're going to want a part of that also. That's the legacy or heritage we hope to leave behind for our kids. Children also need, we see in our psalm, shaping and sharpening. Uh, verse 4, we read, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Arrows are obviously a weapon, but they, you didn't just order them off Amazon in 12 packs back in the day, all right? You couldn't just get them in that way. Each, each, each user of an arrow was responsible for crafting with specialty their arrow that, to just sharpen it for their readiness. I was reading about Hebrew warfare. Interesting. Some arrows were made of metal. Some were flatheads. Some had three or four veins in them. Some had these, these barbed uh, uh, ends to them so they would stick in a person and make it harder to get out in warfare. They were very carefully and purposely shaped and crafted. Children who love God and honor others don't arrive prepackaged from heaven. Hold out to them continually with the way we live and how we communicate to them a high standard, even higher grace. This guy, uh, Dr. Tim Kimmel, he's the author of Grace Based Parenting. He talked about how him and his, his wife try to shape their kids with two phrases. For them, it was, we expect you to do great things, and when you fail, you're forgiven. We expect you to do great things, and when you fail at it, you're forgiven. That's how kids get sharpened. You hold out the hope of daring for greatness and grace when they fail, and then repeat the process, right? Rinse and repeat. There's hope for greatness, but there's forgiveness when you fail. And then you rinse and repeat. Finally, we really read here in the Psalms that children are a return on investment. We read in verse 5, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with kids. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The parent who is generous with his time and patience and when their kids are young will usually see his kids grow up into generous adult children. Not always, but usually. The picture in verse 5 is of a father's kids generously coming back to his defense when he's older, when he's more vulnerable, when he's at the gate and he's being attacked verbally. His kids come around him and say, no, 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 we know this man. He is honorable. He is generous. We will defend him. And that's the picture we're given here in verse 5. There's no guarantee of this happening, even if you're a great parent. And I know that. A lot of God's grace is involved, but our generosity of time, of patience, of spirit, of, of grace usually results in a return on investment. Children who want to be generous with us. Adult children who want to bless us. Now, I've already discussed with you, I've already discussed, sorry, with our, with our boys, Mason and Gage, being generous to us when they're older, generously sharing their first million dollars with us, for example, to take care of mom and dad when they're older. Now, they are, at best, indifferent to this idea, I would say, Maybe even a little hostile to it, understandably. But I'll say this. We actually had to work to encourage our oldest son, Mason, to consider attending a college somewhere other, just to consider attending a college somewhere other than Northern California. Because for whatever reason, and we're still trying to figure out what that reason is, he likes us and actually wouldn't mind staying close to home for college. And we consider this a great blessing, even though... We're going to miss him next year in San Diego. Um, yeah. It, it, 
I want to say this as we close, though. If you hear all this, and you're a parent of adult children, and you feel like maybe you've, uh, you've failed in your work as a parent, I want you to notice one detail of grace and encouragement you may have missed. Solomon, we know this from, from context clues here and from other things he writ, wrote, Solomon writes this psalm almost certainly at the end of his life. It's not just a song for him, it's a confession. Solomon did not trust God's work during his reign as king. He did not trust God in his parenting either. In fact, he left his kingdom pretty vulnerable and his family in significant disarray. So to speak up publicly like this, for all of God's people to hear and everyone to say, oh, we know your life, Solomon, and you're still saying this, it's actually a a radical act of self-denial of humility to write this. Here's Here's the wisest possibly most successful, wealthiest man to have yet walked the earth, exalting a creed of faith at which everyone know he failed. But he says all this as if to say, hey, look, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about a God who wants to work in partnership with you and remain faithful even when you're not, just like I wasn't. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your wisdom and your guidance in this area of work, even just in this short psalm. We don't want our work to be in vain, whether it's uh, working to to produce things, um, create things, to sustain things, to redeem things. We don't want that kind of work to be in vain. We want through Jesus Christ and through the power that he puts in us and the, the the freedom of knowing we're right with him to produce work that really lasts in partnership with you, God. And we're thankful that we can do that. Not, we don't want the bread of anxious toil. We want to do work and then trust you to fill in the gaps where we can't. And Father, I, I do pray for all of us and, who are parents and, and work at home that you would help us, sustain us, help us Hold out a high standard for our kids, but remind them of being higher grace and love and forgiveness when we fail. Father, we ask for your help to produce generous children, but we know we need your help for that. That everything is a gift of your grace, that we need help in all of it. But we're thankful that you give it, and you're with us even as we continue to work. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.